you have a Bible, uh, please keep it open to the passage that Katie just read for us. First Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 31. There's also a handout in your bulletin that you can take out. It's got the sermon outline, and that should give you a steer as to where this sermon is heading. And those of you who are joining us via Zoom, the sermon outline will be on the screen. Released in an increasingly divided world, and I think that shouldn't be news to anybody. Politics has become partisan in a way that we have perhaps not seen previously. Economically speaking, the gap between the haves and the have-nots has increased significantly. Recent figures show that the top CEOs in Canada earned about 85 times the average Canadian income in 1995. And the latest figures that we have in 2019, the same figure is 202 times. And so the gaps widen considerably. And much of the divisiveness in recent times has been accentuated by social media. Social media has been pitched as a way for us to stay connected. But they have instead become a way for stoking anger at people we've never even met. They amplify the most extreme voices because they're the ones most likely to generate a response. And so being loud gets Facebook likes. Being unreasonable gets you your Twitter retweets. And as someone puts it, Social media is not necessarily biased leftwards or rightward. It's biased downwards. And the church is unfortunately not that much different. The commentator said that the church has often become more like a country club where many of its members have a sense of entitlement instead of an attitude of service. They pay their dues to get their ways, and if they don't get away, their way on every issue, it often leads to divisions. And so we divide over views on how the church should grow, the direction it should take, the priorities that it should have, whether it should embark on a building project, and so on. Church finances can divide, and so can worship music. And the pandemic this past year has made it worse. LifeWay Research conducted a survey of over 400 Protestant pastors last year to find out pastors' views on how COVID-19 is affecting the church. And one of the questions in the survey was, as a pastor, what are the pressure points that you're feeling most right now? And of about the top 10 pressure points mentioned, and, and some of these would include the safety and well-being of members, the pastoral care from a distance, uncertainty, planning for a return, finances, and so on. The number one pressure point by far was maintaining unity and conflict and complaints in the church. In short, keeping the church from being divided is the number one pressure point for most pastors. 
And examples of some of the responses from the pastors would, on maintaining unity would include, for instance, uh, this pastor said, people are very upset about our state's mandatory mask requirements. At least two key families will not come to church because they refuse to wear a mask. End quote. And here's another response. People's attitudes have split very much on partisan lines. Half the church is opposed to any reopening and half the church is frustrated that we haven't long since reopened. End quote. Yet another response. My people are in very different places regarding the virus. Some are losing patience and want to get on with normal life with little regard for the potential consequences. Others are still practicing extreme social distancing and are having a tough time understanding others who are not taking this as seriously as they are. You know what? If there's one thing the Bible teaches us, it is that human nature hasn't changed very much over the years. Because this is not very much different in the days of the Apostle Paul. And a passage that was just read earlier uh, by Katie for us comes from a letter that Paul sent to the church in Corinth. And this was probably sometime in the early AD 50s. Like our churches today, the Corinthian church had many issues that were causing division. Its members were forming factions in the church, divided over which leaders they would rather follow. So you read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Some say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas. Oh, I follow Christ. They were suing each other in court. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. They disagreed over whether they should eat food offered to idols. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to 11. They were disorderly in their worship in church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to 14. But one particular issue of divisiveness within the Corinthian church was that of spiritual gifts. People in the church were comparing different gifts and boasting about them, putting down those with what they thought were lesser gifts and those seemingly without any gifts. And in particular, members in the Corinthian church were touching an inflated value on the gift of tongues. And those with the gift of tongues were seeing themselves as spiritually superior compared to those who didn't have to give. And this caused divisions within the church. And here in the chapters from chapter 12 to 14, Paul wanted to address this issue with the church. He wanted to make clear that in the church, there is no place for divisiveness. And although Paul's focus was on spiritual gifts, the principles that he used to explain why unity is important apply very well to other issues as well that divides the church. And hence, while the issue of spiritual gift is not an issue that is a source of division within our church, the points that Paul is making would be helpful in preventing other issues from dividing us here at Christ King. And so in short, there are some important things that we can learn from the passage for our church today. So let's dive into the passage. Our passage this afternoon starts with the word for in verse 12. You know by now what that means? It means that what comes after this fall is intended to explain what had come before it. And in chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, Paul had been making the argument that God had given the church a diversity of gifts. 
or as verse 7 puts it, a manifestation of the Spirit. And the reason for this gifts, they were for the common good. And precisely because there's such a diversity of gifts, the church needs every member. And so there's no place for divisiveness. There's no place for boasting of gifts and putting down of others in the church. And to make his point, Paul uses the human body as an illustration to explain. The right way to think about a church, Paul says, is to compare it with our bodies. And so in verse 12, Paul writes that just as our body is one, it has many members. For instance, it has hands, legs, eyes, ears, and so on. And so in that unity of one body, there is diversity. And as the end of verse 12 puts it, so it is with Christ. The word Christ here is really a short form for the phrase body of Christ, which is the church. We're all part of the church, the one body of Christ. And this body of Christ too has many members. Verse 13 tells us why this body is one, why there is unity. Paul writes, for in one spirit, we, are, we were all baptized into one body and all were made to drink of one spirit. These two phrases form a sort of parallelism, making the same point, which is the experience of conversion. The moment someone becomes a Christian, when they receive the spirit, and the imagery here that Paul is drawing on is that of the spirit being the water that we are baptized in, from which we also drink from and are being filled with. In John's gospel, chapter 7, verse 37 to 38, Jesus alluded to this imagery when he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John then goes on to explain in verse 39. Now this, Jesus said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But take note that the emphasis Paul is making here is not the fact that we receive the Spirit. Rather, the point that he's making is that the body is one because we have been formed by that one Spirit. Hence, in one Spirit, we were baptized. Of one Spirit, we were made to drink. You see the emphasis on the word one? And because we all receive the one Spirit upon our conversion, the Spirit is the basis for our unity. And even though Corinthians may have come from different ethnic backgrounds, you have Jews and Greeks, or different socioeconomic backgrounds, you have slaves and free. In Christ, these distinctions, these differences have been, as one commentator puts it, obliterated. Not in a sense that there are no longer Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, but rather in a sense of these categories having any significance at all now that they have all become one body in Christ. And having established that they had all become one body, Paul then goes on to make a point in verse 14 that even though they were one body, they did not consist of one member, but of many. There is individuality because there is diversity. Each of us as an individual member of the body matters. We're not like, you know, you play your kids, you know, Play-Doh. We're not subsume into one big blob of Plato, each one of us, where we lose our individuality as Christians. Perhaps an illustration will help. Think of it this way. 
We want to be like a bowl of salad, not a glass of smoothie. You see, you can have the same ingredient in both, but for the salad, the ingredients are still distinguishable, but hardly so. You can't recognize them in the smoothie. And so there will still be Jews and Greek, slaves and free. We want to affirm the diversity. Everyone is not forced to be a Jew or everyone forced to be a Greek. There is individuality. But mind you, this is not about individualism, which is a totally different thing and perhaps a subject for another day. Now, now all that I've said so far leads to two implications. And both of them are relevant for us today. The first can be seen in verse 15. It stems from a sense of inferiority. Picture the foot saying this. Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Well, you can imagine that being said today in our churches, can't you? Because I don't have a university degree, I, I don't belong to this church. They're also educated. Because I'm not white, I don't belong to this church. Because I don't live in a certain postal code, I don't feel I belong to this church. And this, to some extent, comes from a sense of inferiority, a sense of inadequacy. You don't need me, basically. That's the feeling of the person saying this. Now, do you know of anyone who might feel that way in our church? And what's Paul's response? That's ridiculous. Why? He gives us three reasons. Because firstly, you need to face reality. Just because you say you don't belong or you feel you don't belong doesn't mean you don't belong. Look at verse 15 again. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You see, just saying that you don't belong does not in any way make you less a part of the body. Likewise, in verse 16, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Same point here. The reality is that as long as you've received the spirit, you belong to the body of Christ, whether you feel it or not. That's the first point. The second is this. Our differences are important. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Can you imagine if you were nothing but just one big eye? The body won't exist if that was the case. So thinking about it in today's church, if the whole church preaches, who's going to be singing? If the whole church plays the keyboard, who's going to be doing the technical stuff for the service? You get a picture. We all have different gifts and we all play different roles. Thirdly, Paul says, this is the way God has ordained things. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. It's God's sovereign design. He chose it. He could have chosen from a million other permutations, but no, he has chosen things to be exactly this way. Diversity in unity. This is God's idea of how to achieve the outcome where each person's different spiritual gift 
each person's different manifestation of the spirit can come together for the common good. So don't feel inferior because you're not like someone else in the church. Don't say you don't belong. Because as long as we are in the body of Christ, we belong in the church. Now, having dwelt, dealt with someone who may be feeling inferior, Paul turns now to those at the other extreme. Someone in church who feels superior. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Or the first group of people earlier on, out of a sense of inferiority, says, I don't belong. This next group of people, out of a sense of superiority, says, I don't need you. I'm self-sufficient. And in a sense, that actually describes the 21st century people fairly well, doesn't it? Because every time you hear someone say in the office, you're fired. You're hearing, and in fact, someone say, I don't need you. Every time you hear someone say in a marriage, I want a divorce because you're not fulfilling my need. You're hearing someone say, in effect, I don't need you. And what's Paul's response to all this? That's rubbish. He's saying, those sort of things shouldn't happen in a church. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Ben, catch. Good catch. I knew I could count on you. Now, if the eye were to say to the hand, I have no need of you, and if the whole body were to be an eye, Ben would have seen the ball coming at him, but he would not have the hands to catch it. Right? And if the whole body was a hand, he would not have seen the ball coming, and his hand wouldn't know where and when to catch the ball. Either way, he will be hit by the ball. Now, in fact, Paul goes on to say in verses 22 to 24, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Well, by weaker parts, I guess we can think of the pinky finger compared to the thumb, for instance. The less honorable or unpresentable parts, Paul is probably referring to excretory or sexual organs. But note that Paul is not even necessarily saying that some of these parts are weaker. If you read carefully, he's merely saying that they may seem to us to be weaker. But even if they seem weaker, Paul is saying here that they are indispensable. I mean, how else are you ever going to pick your nose without a pinky finger? Right? Think of a car. Think of the hose used to deliver the fuel from one part of the car, the gas from one part of the car to another. Now, compare the hose to the car's latest computerized electronic ignition system. One is as low-tech and unimpressive as could be, while the other is highly sophisticated. But a car won't move if the hose is not delivering the gas from the fuel tank to the engine where it's needed. So the hose may not be impressive or a technological wonder, but a car just simply won't run without it. And in our modern day culture, we prefer to be independent, to be autonomous, but Paul is advocating just the opposite. 
He's telling the church in Corinth that a biblical mother is interdependence. And that's what the church community is to be about. We are to be countercultural and a witness to the watching world what the body of Christ is to be, mutually complementing one another in interdependence. We're not just a collection of separate individuals, but a body of diverse people united in Christ. And this is how God has designed the church to be. And when we get that, instead of thinking another person is weaker, and hence we have no need of them, instead of that, we start to treat them with special care because we need each other. And so Paul is saying in verse 25 that when that happens, there will then be no division. None of the thinking that I don't belong or I don't need you, but rather mutual care for one another. And this mutual care means often when one body, member of the body of Christ suffers, all suffers together. Like if I have a toothache, my whole body suffers. Likewise, if one member is honored or rejoices, all rejoice together. So you can imagine if my waistline reduces, my whole body rejoices, and so will my wife. In fact, if you push this to its logical conclusion, what it means is this, as one commentator puts it, in the body of Christ, there are, strictly speaking, no private sufferings. Let me repeat that. In the body of Christ, there are, strictly speaking, no private sufferings. All are shared because there's one life of the whole. Accordingly, wrong done to one member is wrong done to the whole church and therefore to Christ himself. End quote. And that's how we should be thinking. Now, I know this is hard to conceive for many of us here in an individualistic Western culture. But I can tell it is not a huge stretch of imagination in many places where the culture is more communal. And regarding this mutual care, Paul tells, tells us what God has done to help us provide this care for one another, how we're supposed to do ministry. In verses 28 to 30, Paul tells us that God appointed diverse people, for instance, apostles, prophets, and teachers. And he gave diverse gifts, such as gifts of miracle, gift of healing, administration, and various kinds of tongue in a church. And so instead of allowing this diversity of spiritual gifts to be a source of division, as was happening in the Corinth church, Paul tells them to use these gifts for the church, for ministry. In fact, he tells them to earnestly desire the higher gifts. And what are these higher gifts? These are the gifts that do more to build up the church. Because Paul explains that in chapter 14, verse 5. If I give an example, he says gifts such as prophecy would be a higher gift compared to that of tongues. Paul wants them to use their gifts to serve the church for ministry instead. And then at the end of the chapter, in verse 31, just before he moves on to the next chapter, Paul writes, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And we know what an excellent way is. Because everybody knows what the next chapter is. First Corinthians chapter 13. It's a chapter most read in wedding ceremonies. It's about love. And here Paul is saying the most excellent way 
is the way of love. Or as the King James Version of the Bible would put it, it's the way of charity. And in fact, Paul is saying here, seek the spiritual gifts by all means. Better still, seek the greater gifts, that is the gifts that build up the church, gifts for ministry in a church. And most importantly, do that in a context of love, of charity. Let love be your reason, your motivating context for seeking your gifts and ministry. Let me conclude. Well, we know unity is a problem in churches. We know how God wants us to think about unity in our church. The question is, how should we go about putting into practice what we've learned? Perhaps one way of answering that question is to ask another question. What do we have in our church that will help our people to be able to move from saying, I do not belong, to I do belong? What do we have in our church that will help our people to be able to move from saying, I do not need you, to I do need you? And the answer? Well, I'm sure there are many answers to those questions. We could preach on these things more often, for instance. We could keep a lookout for those who may feel they don't belong and perhaps even provide counseling services for them. We could look out for those more divisive members in our church, pull them aside for a talk. Or, as you would expect coming from me, we could encourage everyone to be part of a small group in church. Look, I, I recognize that small groups are not the silver bullet uh, to the problem. It's a good place to start. Because the smaller size of each small group will give us a greater sense of intimacy, of informality, and so on. And this will help us to get to know each other better. And when we know each other better, as we begin to learn more about each other's story, and what we share in common, it's often easier for differences to be confronted and resolved before they get out of control. Being part of a small group will also allow us to show care for one another because it is in our fellowship and our time together that we'll come to know of the needs of others and that will provide us with the opportunity to demonstrate our care. And it's in our sharing our time together that we'll come to know when a member is suffering so we can suffer together or rejoicing so we can rejoice together. Well, that does challenge a little our perception of why we go to small groups, doesn't it? Do we come to small groups just because it fulfills some need of ours? Or perhaps because we have nothing in our diary that evening? What we have learned so far, I hope, challenges us to think about why we come to small group. And it is so that we can care for others, share in their sufferings, and their rejoicing. And also to let others know of our sufferings and our joys, so that they, in turn, can share them with us. In fact, apart from our small group, think about it. How else can most of us at our church know when a member is suffering or rejoicing? And so our hope is that being at small group will allow us to do all that. Well, at least that's what we hope. And frankly, that's what we know is happening.
How do I know that? Because we did a survey a couple of months ago regarding our small groups, and we found that out of about 30 responses, more than 80%, 86% actually, agree or strongly agree that small group has enabled them to build deeper relationships with some of the other members in their group. And 90% agree or strongly agree that their small group members have grown closer to each other over the years. And looking at these numbers, I would think that our small group has contributed in some way perhaps to foster a greater sense of belonging among our members and perhaps also help lessen an attitude of self-dependency as well. Finally, remember what we learned this afternoon. We belong together in Christ. We need each other. We are different from one another. And we are to care for one another. And it helps to join a small group. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.